In some ways, the digital nomad script is a hyper-optimization for these elements. And even something like a five flags theory, where you earn here, you protect your assets here, you live here, is a saying of like, well, let's decentralize the American dream. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Yo. Awesome, man. How you doing? Doing great. Doing great? Doing great. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Ian and I got a bunch of stuff to talk about at the top here, but today's main segment is going to be about the American dream, uh, a topic that is a big topic, but one that we recently read about. We read a wonderful article about the American dream, and we thought, what is the American dream and what does it have to do with entrepreneurship? And it seems like it's commandeered in so many different directions and for so long. And I think it's relevant. It's obviously very much relevant to people who aren't Americans as well. That's the whole idea. So the idea of the American dream traditionally has been that America is a land of opportunity, that if you come here and work hard, that you'll be able to change your financial station. I think it's relevant because that's why we're all here listening to this podcast is because we want to change our financial station. So even if we're not Americans or believe in the American dream or even think that's a good idea anymore, we believe in the core concept that we want to take a step forward in terms of financial freedom. We want to take a big step forward in our lives in terms of our financial power and our location and time freedom. So that's why we're going to cover that topic here today. A couple of things I want to mention. I've been getting a lot of emails from listeners about injuries from sports. Well, we had a throwaway segment on the podcast. The basic premise is this. I've been reading about a lot of injuries online. It's like people continuing to play basketball. They're continuing to do combat sports. You know, things like boxing. You know, play the sports they played when they were kids. They're doing it at 30, 40, 50 and suffering injury. And pitch was, it's time to graduate. It's time to graduate into midlife sports. Things like tennis, pickleball. Cycling. <laughs> Trying to become a triathlete. Endurance, Endurance sports, yeah. <laughs> and my point was, there's something important about the idea that you can compete 100% in these things. Ian, you have a friend who's over 70 who treats pickleball like the Super Bowl. And there's something cool about being able to go out there and go 10 out of 10, you know, and really compete. And that was kind of the concept of, of the segment. But the emails that came into me we're a little bit more emotional than I expected. And I started to connect some dots here. And I guess what I realized with help of the listeners is that the reason they, they've been hanging on to these team sports is a sense of community and camaraderie and connection. You know, there's something about being with your team through the whole season, through ups and downs, everybody getting in shape together, everybody succeeding or failing together. That is what we live for you know, for lack of a better way to put it. And it's really painful to get rid of that. I've been seeing that in my inbox and I thought I'd flag it up at the top here, feeling the love and the pain out in the audience around this topic. And it threads together this concept of community in general. You know, less of us are going to church than ever. 
A lot of us debate whether you know your work life should be your social life. A lot of us in this community tend to be these hyper hobbyists. We become like semi-pro mountain climbers on the side or whatever to figuring out what to do with all the free time that's come from starting a business. And I don't know, in, in the wake of us getting ready to go to Thailand to meet up with hundreds of listeners of this show for community and seeing so much of the messages about people who are flying there and describing it in precisely those terms. It made me think that, I don't know, there's a one and two are related, that we're really seeking experiences that we can feel bonded with each other, that we can contribute to each other and fail and succeed together. And I think that that's why, I think that's part of what the DC is all about. That's part of why we're having, we're designing so many events next year. I saw somebody slag on conferences on Twitter, which is fair enough. Most business conferences are, are lame, but I thought, you know, I don't think that's really what we do at our events. What we're really doing is hanging out with our tribe, you know? And so anyway, that's why I'm excited to fly to Bangkok. But I thought I'd connect all these things as we spent the pre-call planning our bike ride this afternoon. There's just something about competing and going on adventures and succeeding and failing in a community circumstance that's really hard to replace in front of the laptop. You know, we're going on a bike ride this afternoon, Dan, and uh, I wish I was excited about it as you are. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I've been trying so hard to get you guys to go on a mountain bike ride. And the other day, I just out of frustration, I said, guys, should I just sell my mountain bike? And you responded, my bike got stolen, LOL. (laughs) And I just felt so bad about that. That's a topic we're going to have to cover in the middle of the episode where we talk about the good old American dream and safety and security in this country. (laughs) Yeah, all you can do is laugh at this point. No one's going to be able to appreciate that bike as much as I did. I would have paid him anything just to walk away, steal something else. (laughs) (laughs) But we will still have fun, even if it's not on a mountain bike. Like we talked about at the top, we are flying to Bangkok in just a few weeks. If you're listening to this, there's hundreds of us hanging out in Thailand. I thought it would be interesting maybe just for one minute to revisit the origin story because it's kind of random to a degree why we're all, you know, going to this particular city. And I think the reason has a little something to do with the American dream, which is back in 2010, if you wanted to pursue the dream of making money from anywhere, sort of divorcing your earning power from location and from a nine to five. So from a particular time input, there wasn't any options to go work at like a legacy tech company. That wasn't like a real option. You basically had to build something for yourself. And the number one thing standing between you and building something for yourself was your expenses, right? That, that's yep. basically what a salary is. It's like, Money enough to cover your expenses and hopefully a little bit more. Well, you got to do the same thing if you're a founder. And so back in the day, if you wanted to focus on making money online, there's always this moment when you're making money online, you've post quit your job, you're sitting in a place like California and your rent bill comes in and you think to yourself, I heard about that one person who lives in that whatever a place and they're paying a quarter of this and the food's better there by rumor. And at a certain point, you realize that that high expenses is actually potentially getting in the way of you actually succeeding as a bootstrapped founder. And I think that that, that's a big part of the bootstrapped story. That's why the thousand day principle, the idea that you're going to make less 
than you made in your career for three full years, I think is something that people talk with us about so often is that three years of making no money or not making a lot is really hard to go through. And you know what? At the time, a lot of founders weren't going through it. They were either getting money from friends, family, from Silicon Valley, from investors. But those of us who didn't take up those options and didn't have money in our bank accounts, a lot of us just ended up in cheap places. And some of the best cheap places on the globe happened to be in Asia. And when we were thinking about hosting an event to pull people doing this very, at the time, strange lifestyle together, like Bangkok seemed like a reasonable place, like sort of on the map in the middle of where people were doing this that was legible. And so this was 2011. We were sort of cooking up this idea. And by the time we had a chance to change it in 2014, we started hoping some events in Berlin and in America and stuff. It just already had a momentum of its own because Bangkok is an amazing world-class city to have, especially to have an event in. So there you go. That's a little bit of the backstory of DC BKK. Yes, I'm remembering back to those uh, days. And it's funny because not a lot has changed in terms of like, I think the way that you should start a business, like you should eat rice and beans, you should extend your runway, you should drive an entrepreneur mobile, like all these things still apply. And certainly What's an entrepreneur like, mobile? An entrepreneur is that a, mobile. Is that a brand? <laughs> it's just basically about how to buy the cheapest, best vehicles that you can. That'll last you a decent amount of time until you can afford luxury and safety, <laughs> essentially. But uh, all these things stand true, I'd, I'd say, um, and Asia as well. I still see to this day photos passing back and forth in 2023. This is the apartment that you get in Chiang Mai, and this is the apartment that you get in any city in America. And without a doubt, it is always nicer in Asia, and it's always cheaper. So I think like the same rules apply, which is kind of amazing, like 15 years later, which is it's still probably a better bet to start your business in Asia. That being said, we're going to talk in this episode about some of the reasons why America could be a little bit more appealing. On this point of the American dream, you just described sort of Asia as a land of opportunity, which is kind of interesting to me too. And so I think there's a lot of different ways we're going to dissect and bisect this. One way is you could say there's like a consumptive American dream and then there's a creative American dream. Like what do you want to create versus how do you want to consume? The popular one going around the internet right now is you create in America and you consume in Europe. <laughs> create your wealth here and you, you consume it. You, you deploy your wealth in Europe. One of the interesting things I've seen you know, Ian, you're saying, what's surprising? It hasn't changed in 15 years. The first thought that jumped into my mind is like, it's actually even better. Because if you go to Asia now, you're going to be around more established founders doing more interesting things, I think, in general than, than in 2010. For example, if you fly to Chiang Mai in November of this year, if, you get, if you're listening to this and you get on a plane and you go there and start kicking around cafes, you're going to bump into a lot of people running meaningfully significant business. Maybe not. Maybe you're going to have to do a little networking to find your way into the secret cafe, but you know what I mean. They're there. Yeah. They're there somewhere. But the same is sort of true of the, of the West too. It's going to be more legible to connect with those people in the West too. In general, this scene is popping off. And I think the issue is, is like, yes, you can talk about objectively how good a scene is, but there's also the element of how can you access it? So the story of this podcast is typically people who weren't in legacy or prestige 
or pedigreed situations. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about you didn't go to a top tier university. I'm talking about like you didn't have the money to like move to Silicon Valley or New York and like work like a low status job. Honestly, if you come from a wealthy family, that's a lot easier to do that kind of stuff and to pursue those kinds of careers. And if you don't have any money in your bank account when you're in your 20s and your parents don't have any money in your bank account, it's a lot harder to pursue those sorts of things. And you think about the analog with your business. If you don't have somebody that in your network as a 21-year-old, as a 25-year-old, as a 30-year-old, who can just rip off a check in your direction, Asia becomes an interesting option for people in this category. And so there might be a, a distinction there too. It not only matters how good the scene is, it matters what your access to that scene is. I think one of the things that we haven't documented a lot on this pod, Ian, is the explosion of remote work and digital nomadism in, say, the 2015, 16, 17 timeframe. And because this is the first time that prestige technology sort of complex, like that cultural complex, started building remote first companies with some kind of mass and job inventory where you could both be a digital nomad and stay on some kind of prestige track. So from, say, 2008, when Skype was launched, where you could build an affordable agency on the road and you could approximate a tech income by having a small agency where you had, say, three to six clients paying you for the same thing that you make in a tech company, but you're bailing out of the system in terms of prestige, typically. Well, 2015, 16, 17 rolls along, and now careers like growth marketing become more legible, right? Which is stuff we've been doing for a long time, but now it's a thing that companies can measure. And so, cool, that's something you can do remote now. And in fact, look at what Matt Mullenweg's doing over at Automatic. So now we're gonna start companies like GitLab, Zapier, TopTal, Hotjar, these sorts of companies are like, we're just going remote. We're just going remote because we can measure now what people are doing. Yeah. And I think you had people coming up in that era saying, well, hell, like now I can both live in Europe and kind of not take a big dump on my career prospects, which I think before 2016, basically most of the people who took that kind of cost savings route yep. felt like sayonara career. I don't know. Did you feel like that? Like, I've got like the scarlet letter. I can never go back and get a job now. Yeah, totally. I mean, people prioritize other things besides their careers. I think that's the case in which they're willing to take less money and they're willing to have more experiences. And I don't think they're like mutually exclusive. But I think the good thing about that, Dan, that happened was like basically a lot of people became entrepreneurs, which is interesting because like the technology was there. It was like Skype and some of these other technologies that allowed you to work remotely. But you kind of had to do it for yourself, like you said. So I think like a lot of entrepreneurs were actually like birthed out of this time because travel was accessible. Like it was relatively easy to like figure out what was going on in these different countries. And people like us had the wanderlust to, to explore. And so it's kind of like your only option was to start a company. And all of a sudden, like the medium option was became apparent, which is like, you don't have to step up to the plate and try to hit it out of the park. You just need to get on base, right? Which means, hey, I'm going to live in Europe. I'm going to have five clients, each of whom pay me 3000 bucks a month. You know, I'm going to have an assistant or two helping me deliver that product. We're approximating the type of like work from home job that ultimately just ended up existing post-pandemic. 
and now are receding quite heavily, by the way, because it turns out not a lot of people are good at creating results in businesses. <laughs> and so it's kind of an interesting environment here post-pandemic. Real quick, Ian, I know you've been working really hard on DC Black, which is our community for seven and eight figure founders. We started it in the summertime. And the reason was essentially, the reason we do a lot of things is listeners to the podcast, DC members were asking us for it. The DC has between 20 and 40 meetups every month. We have at least one event every month. That number is going way up. And there's all kinds of requests coming our way. But one of the bigger ones was like, hey, you know, the needs of founders at seven plus figures, and many of them way, way beyond that, are, we share a lot of the stuff that you guys are doing there, but we also want something more. And so DC Black comes about, which is essentially a community focused on the issues of seven, eight figure founders. What are those issues, Ian? That's what I'm curious about. Pain. <laughs> pain at a different scale. It's all the same, right? It's like pain at six figures, pain at seven, pain at eight. It's interesting, Dan, because I think like this, it holds up, which is like, if you're going to sit at your desk for eight hours a, a day, like you may as well try and do something that's seven or eight figures. <laughs> so it's like, everybody's up to the same stuff. doesn't matter where you're at in terms of your revenue. Like you're just cranking out work and like trying to make it happen. So I'm in a unique position because I get to see how all these businesses are operating. It's really inspiring to see like people overcome challenges and then also to see like people just on a war path. It's just like, hey, we're hiring like 20 people this month. Or hey... We got our Amazon account banned and we do like eight figures in sales on Amazon. Like how are we going to recover from this? And this is just like any other Wednesday, any other day of the week. It's like all these problems come up. And so I think it's really important to have a, a support group. People that you can talk to, people that have like been through this before. People that you can say like, oh, they're you know six months ahead of me or two years ahead of me. Now I can see kind of where this leads to. You know, the one thing I've been hearing a lot about in, in communities in general is like the NFL has that tagline, any given Sunday. Yeah. And the one that we've been talking about in our office is uh, our virtual office is any given conversation, any given connection. Yep. It's just like one, one little bump, one little nudge, in particular when you're at scale, you know, because those connections, it's like the little hinges swing big doors thing. Like, you have a business that has a lot of power. Just one little deflection changes your trajectory. And um, it's true. I think that's really what we've been optimizing for across the board. I mean, that's why we get together so often in person. Speaking of in person, you launched... I just want to give some updates about the DC Black community. The first thing is over half the community is meeting up in Bangkok for DCBKK. Yep. We have a dedicated DC Black event in New York City. In December, Super somehow you made New York that. City in December cool. I felt the same way. I One know. of the members was like, I can't believe I'm excited to go to New York in December. And I, that was my exact response. <laughs> Dude, I, I mean, I was like, why are we going to New York again? What the hell? Like, <laughs> Let me tell you why. New York City is, is an international hub. Okay, so it's very easy to get to. This is the calculus. The calculus was very easy on this for me. Number one, uh, if you've seen Home Alone 2, you know what Christmas in New York is all about. This is an all-time great movie. Number two, uh, International Hub. Number three, here's the great part about having an event coordinator, and this is new to us, is that I learned so much about throwing this event that I didn't know before because it's always just been us jerks like trying to figure stuff out. 
our event coordinator has booked us a suite at the Barclays Event Center to watch a basketball game fully catered. I didn't know that she could do that. I've never been a part of that kind of status. She has found us a private loft. I just thought like Airbnb was for a residential market. It turns out there's a commercial side of like an Airbnb. I don't know what the site is called, but there's all this cool stuff that you can do in New York because you have all this available real estate that's essentially for sale. Getting back to this idea of the American dream, everything in America is for sale. And in New York, especially, <laughs> it is the case. So I'm super excited about this New York event, Dan. And here's the other thing is like everybody that lives in a tropical place, you know, they want to wear a jacket at some point. So I'm extending that opportunity <laughs> to, <laughs> to them. Oh, yeah. A jacket. We'll, we'll do. <laughs> I wanted to bring it up because one of the things we're working on is we will be opening up the DC Black community to invite other advanced founders, basically people who feel like they haven't found their tribe yet, who want to experiment joining this amazing new group that we're pulling together. If you're curious about being the first to know about all this, we have all the information over at dynamitecircle.com. Just click on DC Black. There's a wait list you can get on. You'll get an email from us that gives you all details. We've got a couple segments today, Ian. The first is there's a new Elon Musk biography. It is written by Walter Isaacson, who's one of the more famous biographers of our time. He's written bios of Steve Jobs, Leonardo da Vinci, and also Benjamin Franklin. His latest is Elon Musk. Uh, there's a lot of different opinions about the Elon Musk biography. Elon has become a lightning rod for a lot of hate, 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 as we like to say around here. He's injected himself into the political discussion in America and yeah, whatever. I, I'm not super interested in that. It's it's kind of cool. It's kind of interesting in general, but maybe not that useful that how he's like changing political discourse in America at the moment. People, a lot of people are really angry at him for that. But what I think is really interesting about the book is number one, the behind the scenes Twitter stuff. It's worth buying the book just for that. Just I'll tell you what, Ian. The, this biography doesn't have as much gravitas as the Benjamin Franklin one. You know? <laughs> well, we'll it see as, as time plays out. There is a element to biography where you need the weight of time to let things emerge. Yeah. When it's like Elon sitting there with some dude who worked at Twitter for a year having this conversation, you're like, is this really historically significant? <laughs> it was like two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, but it is kind of cool if you're a fan of using Twitter and you want to like see what happened. I think it's worth reading for that. But the thing that I want to pull out is something called the algorithm. It was like a record scratch, tires screeching moment in the book where you're like, whoa, this is an insight into the way that Elon Musk works. You pair the algorithm with some moments in the book where Elon really, I think, is a symbol for this concept that's tossed around in Silicon Valley and on podcasts like this called First Principles. Um, you combine the algorithm with an idea of first principles. And you get some of the outcomes that Elon has, of course, with a personality that is absolutely relentless in terms of work ethic and, frankly, the need to, you know, be something in the world. Okay, Ian, I'm going to lay out the Elon Musk algorithm for you and get your, get your take on it. The five commandments of the algorithm, and this is something that Elon uses at all of his companies, 
when he goes and meets with the top engineers, he wants to really shake down and, and assess the value of their work. He forces everyone on the team to, number one, question every requirement. And he makes sure that the requirement comes from a specific person, not a department. So a little bit of Taleb skin in the game there. I want to know the name of the person who created the requirement. He also says that requirements from smart people are more dangerous because people are more likely to blindly follow them. This is sort of an interesting thing that can happen at a smaller scale in our companies when if the founder says something, it tends to get done even if it wasn't well thought through. And it, as your company scales, it's something you need to, to recognize and fight against. Number two part of the algorithm. Delete any part or process you can. It's better to have to add back than to not have deleted enough. Number three, simplify and optimize. You always do after the deletion part of the algorithm um, because one of the most common mistakes that businesses make is they optimize something that shouldn't exist. Number four, accelerate cycle time. Every process can be sped up. You only do this after number two and three. And number five, automate. So you automate at the very end when, for lack of a better term, you have your shit together. Here's a couple correlates. Number one, all technical managers must have hands-on experience or spend 20% of their time doing the actual work. So no middle management layer. Again, skin in the game. Number two, camaraderie is dangerous because it makes people not challenge each other's work. Fascinating. Number three, it's okay to be wrong, but not confident and wrong. <laughs> this is like back to Napoleon's like a dangerous generals thing. Uh, number four, don't ask your troops to do something that you're not willing to do. I think that's interesting and one that comes up in our community a lot. Number five, whenever there are problems to be solved, do a skip level. And what this means is like you dig in not to the person below you, but to the person below that person. And there's always, by the way, in these biographies, there's always uh, the moment when the CEO like has lunch with the earthy maintenance person or like salt of the right. earth lunch connection. It's like, hey, uh, <laughs> they ask some insightful question like, who put the elbow joint onto this pipe over here? And the maintenance worker gives the answer to the CEO and there's a systematic in, this is not how it works, people. This is for a biography only. This is not how the real world works. Anyway, skip a level. <laughs> Hire for attitude, not experience, one we hear often. And number seven, the final one, and this is Elon's thing. Uh, his operating principle is a maniacal sense of urgency. The only rules are those of the laws of physics. Everything else is a recommendation. That's great. I thought this jumped out, you know, so much to me and all the talk on the media and on Twitter was about the political elements or like, you know, is this an apology for the fact that Elon Musk is not a nice person or he's done bad things or whatever? Sure. This is the media's job. This is the media's job. Yeah. But our boys, Jason Fried and DHH both tweeted this algorithm, I actually stopped the book to write down what I just read to you guys. And I've been reflecting on it because it, it was so fascinating to me 
to hear how Elon operates with this level of discipline and has come cleanly to some insights that have been so hard won for so many of us. And sure enough, DHH and Jason Fried, the founders of Basecamp, tweeted the same excerpt and said that they hadn't been so thrilled by a business biography since Maverick uh, by Ricardo Semler, who's been on this show. Um, and there's a lot of time between the two books. And I thought it was interesting that they pulled out how you don't need to sign off on everyone's behavior in order to be inspired by something they've created. I don't know why the conversation always needs to go there. But in my case, this concept of ruthlessly simplifying your processes and then this. Here's, here, I'll connect the, a correlate with a principle, which I think could, has the most power, power. I would implore anyone listening to this to consider doing this in your business. When you've deleted, when you've looked at how you make money, when you've mapped it out on a simple one piece of sheet, one sheet of paper, and you have clarity around how that system works, take the correlate that the only rules are the laws of physics and then ask yourself, how can I accelerate the sequence? This is a very powerful thing that Ian and I have noticed that high-end business coaches, they go right to this. This is like a classic thing. If you want to save 10 grand, consider mapping out how you make money, your cash flow map, your cash flow process. There's a lot of ways you can Google how to do this online. You simplify and you delete everything that doesn't matter. Look at your to-do list. How much of it has to do with your cash flow map and process? Very little probably. So get yourself back on that cash flow map, delete everything, and then ask yourself the question. If there were no assumptions, if there were no rules, how could this move faster? You know, you go back to like the classic kind of business coaches, like you can have more clients, you can convert more clients, you can have more pricing. But what's missing from those equations is simple velocity. How does the whole system move faster? That's a really interesting question with a lot of upside potential for any business. That's my main takeaway from Elon Musk's new biography by Mr. Walter Isaacson. It's taken a lot of hate for having done, taken on this project. An apologetics tour for the world's richest man has been called. I just think that that's uh, lame. I think that the, this is the, like the media's job to just constantly tear people down. And the polarization <laughs> of someone like Elon Musk, you know, is like, yeah, I'm sure he does some unfavorable things. Maybe he's a bad person or whatever, but doesn't mean that you can't learn something from him. So I, sir, am looking forward to listening to this audiobook on my trip to Bangkok here in the next two weeks. Very cool. Hey, if so you like the show, just want to remind you, we have a website, tropicalmba.com. You click through on your phone, check us out on the web, hit that subscribe button. I write the newsletter every week. There's a lot going on behind the scenes of the pod. And that's the best way to find out about upcoming events, both virtual, in-person, and much more. Check us out at tropicalmba.com and give us some feedback on this brand spanking new website. Because it's time for a spanking. Ian, there was a wonderful article written this week by someone I've been following online for a very long time. He goes by Ramirez on Twitter. He wrote an article called, Does the American Dream Still Make Sense? Popular indie hacker Ramirez, who creates software products like Prompt Hero and Hustle, and uh, who has a large following on Twitter, writes articles mostly about software and tech. He recently wrote a long-form article that went viral by my standards. You know, it found its way to my desk. It went viral. And it caught our attention because of the, 
I don't know, it was really nicely done and it was a beautiful breakdown of this concept of the American dream. The backstory of the article is that the author won a green card lottery. Yeah. Which is this kind of, a lot of people will wait their whole lives to get a green card. They want to come to America. Um, he starts the article basically pointing out that if you compared America, the number of immigrants that want to come and do come versus any other country, it's like, it's a trouncing, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's not even a fair fight. One of the, you could call it a dominant global narrative is that not only does the U.S. export their culture in terms of rock and roll and blues music and franchises and all that stuff, but one of the dominant global desires and ambitions is to move to the U.S. So it's a system that, that goes around. He also explores uh, you know, what's attractive about America. He, he explores that the American dream is many different things to many different people. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, one of the most common inflows into America is from Mexico. Um, the average Mexican is looking for much different things from the American dream than the average European or Asian, for example. He talks about how the American dream is failing and changing, especially in the last 10 to 15 years, that many Americans are seeking the European dream, which uh, Ian and I have certainly invested quite a bit of energy and time into exploring the European dream. It is dreamy. (laughs) (laughs) He talked about his own American dream, which revolved around technology in Silicon Valley. And, you know, maybe also asking for suggestions as to the best place to live in America. He ultimately comes to the conclusion that the American dream is broken because America is broken. Um, So the question is, does the American dream still make sense? I mean, at the very top level for the listener, I can sum up the article to say, America is an effed up place in many ways. And there's like crime, there's drug use, there's like our cities suck, you can't walk anywhere, all this stuff we've talked about for income inequality. It's a long list. In fact, you just listen to our back catalog. We have a very thorough accounting of the horrible, a very thorough accounting of the shortcomings of America. However, the author concludes that America is a good place to do the following four things. Number one, build wealth, to obtain debt and funding to perhaps enjoy serendipities of life, and finally to obtain that blue passport with the very cool artwork on the front few pages, <laughs> uh, including spacemen and cowboys. And uh, it's kind of a badass passport, really. <laughs> the, the passport is actually selling the American dream. It's like, you could go to this desert and claim the land for yourself or go to the moon. And you're like, I'm actually just flying to Toronto for a business meeting, but it's true. And I'm getting the vibe. <laughs> it's very, it's very American, that passport, which is uh, maybe a bit overstated in terms of uh, capabilities, but the option is there, even if you're not the capable. Option. Yes. Yeah, you could always not go to Toronto and go claim a part of the frontier. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the reason we're here is to re- reply or to, to be reply guys to the article. I'm wondering if there's any kind of top level idea that jumped off the page to you as you were thinking about the American dream and whether or not it's still as relevant as it was, say, 20 years ago. Well, I had to go and, and look at his uh, Twitter profile after I read the article and turns out he landed in Austin. So, uh, come hang out, come hang out. Number one, number two thing that I did was I actually uh, looked up the Wikipedia definition of like the American dream and it's quite complicated. (laughs) 
I was really surprised, like all the different interpretations and like the history of like what came about and like who was the first person that said it and all these things. And it's one of these uh, ideas or things that gets like thrown around a lot. And I think you're right. Like it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So it's one of these things that kind of dangerous to say just the American dream without context. So his version of the American dream and our version of the American dream and somebody else's, I think are very different. So that's one thing to start this conversation out with. It's like, what is your version of the American dream? And in America, I think it's actually, you know, in that same vein, it's actually perfect because it is uh, your own version. And that's like Americans are like very individualistic and like they have their own interpretations. And so it makes sense to me that there's all these different versions of the American dream. So I think the traditional American dream was something like buy a house, raise kids, don't have debt, have a good job, have a good retirement plan, die happy kind of thing. Like very low stress, seemingly low stress from the outside. Kind of trip into this job, have a dog, a backyard, white picket fence, you know, all these things, right? And so I think when you look at the American dream now, you think, well, it's very hard to pay for an education that pays a good salary that I can pay off quickly or have no debt. It's very hard to have one income. You almost need two now as a family. It's very hard to own property. It's very hard to do all these things that were defined by like the initial quote American dream. So I think from the outside looking in, or even for people that are living in this country right now, they might say the American dream is broken because it's not obtainable. It's not something that you can just do. You actually have to work maybe harder for it. So I guess one question I have after reading this article, and we can kind of sum it up, but like, what is the new American dream? Or what does it look like for someone that's living in America versus somebody that's not living in America? The new American dream has combined the tech explosion with digital nomadism and has arrived at the make it in America, spend it in Europe conclusion. That's the punchline. We've been saying it for years. We've been doing it for years. And now I got to hear Scott Galloway came up with the same conclusion and it went viral. The whole internet, every single podcast is now saying it. It's officially a meme. Make it in America. Spend it in Europe. Today's author is doing sort of the opposite. Do you still think it's relevant if you're an indie hacker and you've made your money working in Asia or in Europe, lower cost places with better lifestyle per dollar, say, yeah, to then come to America in the hopes of more wealth or serendipity? Are these things going to pay off for people in that situation? Well, the, the idea of like make it in America, spend it in Europe, I think that that's just simply an arbitrage play. So it's just simply you can get more for outside of America for your dollar. And so if the idea here is like make American dollars, I think that that's absolutely true. Like it doesn't matter if you live in Poland, if you live in Bangkok, like whatever, like try and make it so your customers are American or at least they pay you in American dollars. As we talk about like the fall of America, right? The fall of the American dream. Everybody talks about like currency collapses and things like this too. My prediction, don't hold me to it necessarily, but uh, the American dollar is going to be the last to go down. All these other currencies are going to go down before the American dollar does. And America is probably going to be the last to go down too, not for seeing some kind of like black swan event. Yeah, very, very good point. The point is, is like, so this indie hacker from Europe, he's like making a good income. Like, are any of the promises of the American dream available to him? Sure. If the idea is to make money here and then spend it abroad. The other concept I think you're talking about that I've been thinking a lot about is, you know how like, 
there's ways to like balance or weight outcomes. So like if you weight the experience in each country by a particular income, how do you then judge the viability of living in a particular place? So for example, there's an interesting situation happening where wealthy Americans, like relatively wealthy Americans are like flying to live in Mexico City. And then like hundreds of thousands of, of poorer Mexicans are like trying to come into America. So there's this weird system happening. Here's an interesting thing. One way to wait it out, just to make it simple, is like say Mexico City costs the same amount as New York City, and then you took away the government red tape of moving there. Would Americans be flying to Mexico City to live there if it was the same cost to fly in New York City? Probably not. Probably not, right? Yeah. And so the concept is simply, they would still go there for like a one-week vacation, maybe, but they're not going to go like relocate there and talk about how great Mexico City is. They're just, it's great because it's cheap. It's, it's arbitrage of value. It's arbitrage. Yeah, all, it all comes back to the arbitrage play. I mean, there's there's some other values to people. Like maybe they have loved ones there. Maybe they just really love that city for whatever reason. Like it appeals to them. Food. Yeah. There's lots whatever of it things is. about Mexico but City. Yeah. I think that the bottom line is like arbitrage. Now, you talk about the reason why like a bunch of people are moving from Mexico or immigrating to Mexico, immigrating from Mexico to America legally or illegally. They have more earning potential in America better quality of life in America. That makes total sense to me. When the American goes down to Mexico, you're not fighting the same battle as somebody that's coming across the border. You're figuring out what five-star hotel to spend your $180 at. It's, it's a completely different situation. Yeah. I think that that's going to continue to happen in places where you have worse infrastructure, corrupt government, currencies that aren't dependable, right? We have all these things in America. We also have like all the things that you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, which is like danger, bad healthcare, all this stuff. But for people that are essentially trying to have a better life, uh, I think America is a great place to do that. And by the way, most of the people that I've met that have come to America, uh, blue collar folks, they send most of their money back to the place where they came from because it's the dollar. It's worth more. You get more in other places with it. The author concludes, I get the feeling though there's something I'm missing in my analysis. This can't be a full picture of the American dream. The U.S. is home to most of the world's billionaires, so it has to be attractive enough for them to live there. There's something I'm not seeing. Maybe I'm just missing a couple billion dollars in the bank. Maybe all these problems are solvable if you throw money at them. Correct. Um, Yeah, well, there's that. (laughs) If you adjust for money, like, you know, I think we do it all the time here where if where you want your money to go is investing in you living in a high quality urban area that runs with harmony and compassion for its citizenry, America is a very bad place for that, that kind of ideal of a life. One of the things you know I share with the author is like a reverence for the technology community in America and all the products that have come out of California It's been an amazing, amazing ride the past few decades. Our lives have completely changed. And in some ways, if you're going to Bangkok to do some indie hacking and then living in Lisbon and Eastern Europe and then visiting America, that is the American dream, right? Like the fact that we're able to materialize US dollars or euros or um, any currency we choose from these amazing software products and then decide how we're going to deploy that income to maximize the sorts of things that we value in our lives is exactly the American dream. You know, like you said, Ian, people 
come here to prosper. And if you've solved that part of the equation, then you don't necessarily need to do that. Now, if you want to be a leader in one of those amazing companies, then yeah, this is the place, right? If you want to meet a lot of the acolytes or contributors to those companies, then yeah, the serendipities like that can happen here. And I do think that as much as I too have complained about debt culture in America, there's definitely two sides to that coin, which is you know, the same way an e-commerce founder wants to incorporate in America and make sure their biggest target market is American optimizing for that rather than all the complexities and of dealing with a European consumer. The same is true of the debt markets here. There's a consistency. There's a, a regulatory clarity. There's a large consistent market such that how incredible it is it that you have easy access to funding and debt in America if you use it correctly. That can potentially be a very positive thing for small business. I mean, we don't typically use that kind of stuff too much, but I do think it's worth recognizing that access to capital is one of the potential positives of people seeking to be a part of the American dream. Another way to, to say that, Dan, is like uh, the financialization of America is just incredible. Like everything has yeah. been, everything has been created into a financial tool. And what that means is like everything is an opportunity in terms of like leverage and figuring out how these systems work, uh, including the SaaS business that you're building, right? It's, a, it's now a financial instrument. But this conversation to me comes down to like kind of, we're kind of talking about polar opposites, right? We're talking about people that are immigrating here. And then we're talking about like really wealthy people. I think in this conversation, what might be missing a little bit is like the, the middle and I think for me, like that's what the American dream was, was about the middle class, the work white hard. defense, yep, work yeah. hard, all that stuff. And unfortunately, like that script is expired. It is very hard to achieve the American dream with that traditional script. I uh, met a college professor uh, the other day, UT college professor, and uh, I asked him just point blank, like, who is actually going to college these days? Like, why would you go to college? I was like, I can't remember the last time I hired somebody at our company and I like cared or looked at their resume to see what kind of college they went to. And of course, there's like obvious examples of uh, people that go to college that need a certain kind of degree, like a doctor, an engineer, a professional degree. But then there's kids that are going to school for like liberal arts or whatever it might be that you, you may not need a specific degree. And his answer was essentially a lot of the people that he asked that question to that are going to college, they're doing it for pedigree. They're first generation. So like their family has never had somebody that has gone to college and got a college degree and it's still very important to them. And so I think that's unfortunately part of the old American dream narrative, which was like go to college, get a good job and have this like good life, right? I would but, still like to point out though, it's the dominant way you can still do it. And and like, so as like we make transitions into new life scripts, there's still this enormous legacy. Like for example, if you look at like wanting to become a billionaire, we could pull a list right now of first and second generation immigrants who run the largest companies in America. That is a, a genuine wealth script. I mean, it might not be a high probability that it works out for you, but you could get a job at those companies, right? You could, and you're going to need a college education to do those things probably, you know, eight times out of 10 still. Well, I'll say this. I think a lot of people, they marry their significant others at college. And so therefore you get two college grads marrying each other. It could represent more wealth, but I think it really matters, Dan, about the college. Yeah. If you're talking about Harvard, 
I think it really matters to college. If you're talking about like the top 10 universities and like the opportunities that come out of those universities, like colleges like Yale and Harvard, makes total sense to me. If you're talking about a D3 school and like the opportunities that you're going to get from that education, I would argue that point. Here's a concept that we've never brought up, but I feel like it's the truth that everyone knows that's hard to talk about, which is cultural glue. We'll just call it cultural glue. There's probably a lot of smart people who've talked about this. But if it just depends what your alternative is. If you're a D3 person and your alternative is to like be a restaurant manager instead of go to college, and like you're spending the majority of your social time hanging around people that are working class that might be partying in the evenings versus in college, you're going to different kinds of parties where people are you know, connecting at frat and sorority houses and they're talking about getting an accounting job and stuff like that. Like that's a cultural glue that if you hung out in a restaurant for three or four years and then you decide that you want to be an accountant instead of a restaurant manager, you're going to have a hard time hanging with those people because you don't know like the code. You don't know the cultural glue of how to hang out with those people, signaling, things like that, right? Like to, to represent, there's a reason me and you are buddies, right? Like there's a reason me and you are friends. Like we have a lot in common and that bonds us over time. And I think that that is a big predictor of the kinds of outcomes you achieve in life in general. Like if you're a working class kid and you rock up in a beater to Silicon Valley and you can't afford the apartment, you can't get a tech job, you're an outsider, they don't really let you in, then man, you're not going to get that job, you're not going to get that money, and then you're kind of out. You make a great point, which is like the context matters. And so like, but the college context is very expensive, right? I think there's probably other ways to like get around that. But you're absolutely right, which is like the conversations that are happening at college are different than the conversations that are happening after work at Applebee's. So the question then is like, how do you import yourself into the conversations that are happening with some of these other folks that may have gone to college without having to spend the money to go there? Yeah. And one way is digital nomadism. So I want to read off. We challenged ourselves to write down what are the elements of the American dream? And there's, as you mentioned, it's complicated, but we just wrote down ease of doing business, low taxes, relatively low discrimination, high freedom, low social castes. So ability to change social status, high opportunity, a general open-mindedness and optimism, inclusion and rewarding of profitable outside perspectives. But what I want to say, Ian, is this concept of ease of doing business, low taxes and stuff are the exact concepts that a digital nomad script tries to capture, right? In some ways, the digital nomad script is a hyper-optimization for these elements. And even something like a five flags theory where you earn here, you protect your assets here, you, you live here, is a saying of like, well, let's decentralize the American dream. And the companies that were built in California have allowed so many of us, in part in California, there's companies globally, of course, but have allowed so many of us to now take on these general principles. And by the way, I'll say, nowhere is the American dream, as far as I can tell, more alive than in China. Unfortunately, some of the elements of the economy are a bit restrictive there, but um, there's a very strong belief in China that if you work hard, be entrepreneurial, and good things are going to come your way. Yeah, I read in that actually that Wikipedia article that I didn't know, which is uh, 90% of Chinese uh, own real estate. And that was like the financial vehicle that like America has been pushing for nearly 100 years now, it seems like. 
So Dan, I agree with you, man. I think that the digital nomad script could be like the new American dream. Mm. And I think when I say American dream, we should say like international dream. Because I think like the the world is getting too flat to like uh, focus just on Americans at this point. So it is interesting because it checks all the boxes. It makes it so you can associate with a different class of people than you came from. Potentially, it makes it so that you can earn American dollars because most of the people that are consuming the products that we're creating are American. And it makes it that you can kind of move in and out of these countries as you see yeah. fit. That might mean white picket fence if that's what you're into uh, in a different country or in America. But I think like the idea here is like creating your own destiny, figuring out what the new script is. Because for me, this old script of like going to college and saving your pennies and all this stuff, it's not going to work out. It's fracturing. It's fracturing for the middle class. So we've got to come up with a new script here. Not everybody has to opt into it. And you're probably going to have to figure out what your own version of it is. My final wrap up. I love that. I'm looking forward to hopefully I'll get an opportunity to spend some time with the author. Now that he's in Austin, Texas, I hope he enjoys our fair city. I suspect that the author will ultimately be disappointed with his own version of the American dream in part because it seems like he's solved some of the most pressing problems, especially with having a strong network of founders and digital nomads globally, which is something that we found really important too in the DC and also solving the wealth part of things. If he has a strong income, if what you're looking for is a place with cultural sophistication and nuance in urban centers, you're probably going to be much more satisfied with places in Asia and in Europe, and especially if you have that network. Now, if you have to plug into the system, which you see a lot of digital nomads doing with either their incorporations, their lawyers, their customers, and America can be a very friendly and interesting place to do that. So I think it depends on how much on-grid you go. I would say typically the typical indie hacker or affiliate marketers can be kind of like less plugged in than someone who's investing in real estate, say. And you're going to have a much better time, like just as an example, like invest in real estate in Spain or try to grow a company that has a lot of footprint in Spain versus footprint in America. That's when the tides will start to shift and you'll start to appreciate being around quirky, optimistic Americans who don't walk anywhere and who ask you what you do within the first 15 minutes of meeting them. So I hope you're not too disappointed, though. There's lots of great places in America, but yeah, it's not perfect. And the American dream is for sale and available pretty much anywhere globally nowadays. I'll say in that article, too, the interesting matrix that he went through, like trying to decide the city that he was going to live in in America, I thought was pretty interesting. Just one thing to mention about that is um, I felt this way about America for a long time, but like it's easy in these American cities to like get marginalized in some way. Like if you're going through this process to try and figure out which city you're going to live in. I think Austin is particularly interesting because actually for better or for, for worse, the barrier to entry is relatively high. Like it's gotten expensive. I luckily got here before it got expensive, but because it's so expensive and because so many people have selected to live in Austin, I think in general, like the people are more interesting and probably smarter. Austin's a very small place. I think it's still like less than a million people in Austin. And most of them have at this point selected to be here. So it's kind of the same for me, Dan, as like bumping into a Westerner in Bangkok. Yes. You have to try really hard to get there. And when you bump into them, most likely they're going to be doing something interesting. Well, 
to tie it back to the top, that's the tide that's been changing since 2016, 17, 18. Ever since technology companies started offering remote first prestige positions, bumping into somebody in Bangkok has gotten, on average, less interesting. Because now all of a sudden you're not bumping into a risk taker. You're not bumping into a founder. You're not bumping into somebody with a crazy quirky story of you make money doing they're basically, they could be managing a customer service team or something like that, which is the same thing uh, as you bumping into somebody in, in just sort of a, a typical city in America, which is fine. But I do think you're right is I've started to notice that that balance has sifted too, where being abroad in expat circles used to be such an incredible filter. And there's these basically neighborhoods in Austin that are similar type of filters. I mean, we have a story every single week between the two of you. Oh, I bumped into the CTO of this or the founder of this. And it, it happens on a, a weekly, if not daily basis here in Austin. Oh, one more thing I want to say about the interesting thing about this author. You said it's easy to get marginalized in America. So I first off, I just want to shout out to the author for writing such a thoughtful piece and spending the time. I love when founders do this. And it's, a, it's an offering to the world to share your thoughts, to do your research. And yeah, it's obviously Ian and I have been talking about it this week. There's one thing that jumped off the page at me. Basically, saying you don't want to get a car if you live in America is like saying you don't want to eat Haman if you go to Spain. Like, you just got to bite the bullet and do it. You don't want to be a second-class citizen. Like, America is just, for better or for worse, built for cars. I know a lot, a lot of indie hackers, founders, people who've attempted to move to Austin and they try to do the Uber holdout thing. I'm going to have a bike. I'm going to have an Uber. You're just missing out that one of the number one critical feedbacks of this article is, you know, America doesn't do cities well, but we really do like rural and suburb areas well. Like you'll notice only 10 minutes outside of Austin, you're in like a different world. And a lot of that world's really interesting and really worth going to. And if you're depending on Uber to get there, you will go there a lot less. And so I really recommend to the author and anyone doing a short-term trip in America. I know it's a total pain in the butt. America's not typically, it's so expensive to do the digital nomad thing in America, right? To get an apartment, to get a car, whatever. But you're not really getting the whole enchilada if you don't have wheels. So it's like not having a scooter in Chiang Mai. Exactly. It's, it's the same thing. I remember I lived for a couple of weeks in Chiang Mai without a scooter. You're in a mountainous jungle paradise with rice paddies and farms. And, and by the way, it's a chaotic, large city. So if you're just walking around three blocks of it, which are, by the way, I mean, one of the biggest things, just talk about urbanism, the density of America is so much less than a place like Madrid. You can really see a meaningful amount of Madrid culture in a 20-minute walk. You cannot do that in Texas. And so you're just your density and your fidelity of your experience, I think, just gets a lot less. Call it, I just think that's true. I, I've seen so many people struggle with the expenditure of the car thing. And there's just no substitute. Cars in America are like cookies. They're like cream. They're like Bert and Ernie. They're like the roadrunner and the guy chasing after them. They just, you got to have, you, you can't have one without the other for now. Hopefully that, that'll change. All right. Can we go ride our bikes now? Great trail systems here in Austin, Texas, by the way. If you like to take hikes or if you like 
to do trail running or if you want to ride your bike on them. All right. I just want to close it out. Give a shout out to anybody out there still doing long form on the internet. Send us your favorite articles. We love digging into Shout out to Ramirez on Twitter for writing this wonderful piece and to Walter Isaacson for that matter, writing the long form about Elon. Yeah. I think the American dream is inspiring to me because it's very close to the entrepreneurial dream, which swap out the branding of it. For me, it's this idea that we have ambition and that we're not just accepting. We don't have here in the States, we don't have social castes or social levels to the same degree that I've seen in cultures that are more established. And because of that, we believe with the right work ethic and the right attitude that you can change your station. So yeah, my that's my fundamental response is, do I think America has a lot of challenges and doesn't deserve always the exceptional status in every category that many Americans believe it holds? 100% that there's many broken things in America. Do I believe this American dream is broken? Not quite yet. As long as there's founders around, as long as there's people working hard to get to their next station, we're just happy to rebrand it, the entrepreneurial dream or whatever, export it into the cloud, export it to another country, whatever. I think that's still alive and well, and that's the principle. The idea, to bring it back to Elon Musk, the idea that you can come to this country and achieve everything that he's achieved, that to me is the American dream. And I can't think of another country you could do that in. Is it accomplish as much as he's accomplished? Have the government own as little as they own of it <laughs> and have him be in the control that he is in? Yeah, I like your answer because you're talking about America. Let me talk about the thing I'm most proud about America. And I think it captures maybe what the author, the author's focus on very practical things, but I often say that living in Austin, it's not yummy, but it's nourishing. There's a lot of deeper things here that contribute to the sorts of things we're trying to do in our life. If I get the Spanish entrepreneur visa again, and I hang out in Spain for 10 years and get a Spanish passport, and I go to the author Ramirez and say, you know what? I've been here for 10 years. I got my passport. I'm Spanish now. He'd be like, yeah, you know, you Cool, cool. I mean, amazing. We appreciate the vote of confidence in the Spanish economy and the Spanish culture. You're not really Spanish though, right? There'd be a little bit of that. Yeah. But if the author comes to me in 10 years and says, I got my passport, I work for some tech company, still doing the indie hacker thing. I'm an American now. I'd be like, welcome to the club. Totally. And I think that that, obviously there's some caveats and, but that, that to me is the thing. Totally. And that's the American dream. So there you go. That's the episode. See you next week. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.